Let's pray together as we prepare to hear from God's Word. Father, our desire is to follow you, to be near you, to be like you. Are we just saying that our shepherd king, his way is best. Lord, we believe this to be true. Your ways are better than our ways. Your ways are higher than our ways. We know that we discover your ways primarily through reading and studying your word. As we do that now, we ask that you give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear what you would say to us this morning. We pray in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Galatians chapter 5, and our sermon this morning will be from Galatians 5, verses 13 through 15. My name is Stephen Story. I serve as the executive pastor here at Crawford Avenue, and today is the second week in our four-week series considering the one another, some of the one another commands of Scripture. You know, the Bible is very concerned with how God's people live together in community, Especially the New Testament is full of guidance and instructions for what it looks like for Christians to live together as one family, one community of faith. Many of these instructions use the language of one another. And so when we say the one another's of Scripture, this is what we're talking about. These verses all through the New Testament that talk about Christian community in this way. Last week, Kevin preached for us from Romans, and we considered the idea of honoring one another. And today, we'll be thinking about the idea of serving one another. So, please follow along. I'm going to read for us Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Amen. This is God's word. Well, last weekend was July 4th weekend, so I imagine the idea of freedom is fresh on our minds today. I'll go ahead and Start with a heads up. Freedom is a central theme of the passage that we'll look at today, but it carries a little bit different meaning than what probably comes to our minds the week after July 4th. So we need to acknowledge that so that we rightly understand our passage. Now, we as Americans, I think, have very definite ideas of freedom. We think about the Declaration of Independence and being free from a tyrannical king on the other side of the ocean. We think about freedom from slavery and injustice. Uh, Franklin Roosevelt famously spoke about the four freedoms, as he labeled them, freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and freedom from fear. Or maybe we just think about the freedom to shoot off a lot of fireworks in our driveway into all hours of the night, kind of like in my neighborhood last weekend, everybody was shooting fireworks. I heard a a news interview uh, this week with a a gentleman who was explaining what July 4th meant to him, and he said, I'm an American. I feel like I should be able to do what I want. I pay my taxes, I live free, and I want to be free. Well, I think he summed up pretty well a common American conception of freedom. I should be able to do what I want. I want to be free. And in this context, freedom means the absence of constraint, the absence of any voice other than my own telling me what I should do. 
In the pages of the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, however, has a much grander idea of freedom than what we typically conjure up as Americans. For one, he's talking about a kind of freedom that's much bigger than a political or a social freedom. For another, his idea of freedom is not nearly as individualistic as what often comes to our minds. So we'll look today at what Paul means by freedom and how it connects to the idea of serving one another. And here's the main idea of the sermon today, that Christ has set us free, unchaining us from the law and binding us to each other in loving service. We have three main points that we'll consider. First, freedom defined. Second, freedom abused. And third, freedom applied. So, our first point, freedom defined. So, when Paul here in Galatians speaks of freedom, he is talking about freedom from the terrible bondage of having to work and work and work to earn God's favor and acceptance. This freedom that Paul speaks of, it's, it's not a small thing. It's actually a primary part of what it means to be a Christian. Look at verse 13. You were called to freedom, brothers. That's how important this is. It's something we were called to when we were saved. So let's think about the context for a moment. Here in uh, Galatians, uh, this is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of churches that were in danger of believing a false gospel. They were in danger of turning to dependence on the Old Testament religious laws as an attempt to secure their salvation. And specifically, they were beginning to follow after some who were teaching that circumcision was required in order to be saved from sin and accepted by God. Of course, in the Old Testament law, circumcision was the sign of God's covenant with his people, and it was required to be considered part of the people of God. Well, Paul answers strongly, and he argues that, that justification, that being made right with God, is by faith alone. It's not by anything that we do. It's not by obeying all the rules or observing any law or ritual or custom. No, Paul says that salvation is by faith alone. Look back a little bit at chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. He writes, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul states it plainly, it is not possible to be made right with God by obeying the law. It is not possible to live in such a, a right and flawless and upright manner that God will accept you. By works of the law, no one will be justified. Look down just a little bit further at chapter 3, verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Why is it impossible to be made right with God by observing the law? Because unless you can do everything God's law requires and do it perfectly, you stand condemned. Cursed is the word that Paul uses. You stand condemned before God. But then look at chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and Paul continues. He says, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. 
I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So Paul's addressing this problem in the Galatian churches that some are teaching that if you desire to follow Jesus, then you have to be circumcised, just like the law required. And if you don't, you can't really be a Christian. And Paul says, do you realize if you want to pursue salvation by works, if you want to pursue salvation by obeying the law, you can't pick and choose the parts of the law that you want to obey. You can't say, well, you have to be circumcised in order to be a Christian and then ignore other parts of the law. You can envision Paul starting to pull his hair out a little bit here as he talks to the Galatians. He says, do you realize what you're saying? If you put your hope in circumcision, then you are obligated to keep the whole law, and that is impossible to do. So now we come to our our, uh, section here in Galatians chapter 5, and Paul says, for freedom Christ has set us free, uh, in verse 1, and then you were called to freedom, brothers. And so this is Paul's definition of freedom. This is what Paul means. You were chained to the law. It offered you no hope. It was like having a weight tied around your neck that was dragging you down, and ultimately it would condemn you and kill you. But Christ set you free. Some of us have been trusting in Christ for a long time, and we just need to be reminded of what it is that Christ freed us from. And the apostle does that for us this morning. There may be some of you that if you're able to honestly assess where you are spiritually, uh, some of you need to hear this good news that we're considering right now. You may know intuitively that you are separated from God, that God is not happy with you. He's not happy with things that you do and the way you live your life. Maybe you worry that if you were to die, that God would not accept you into his presence in heaven. Well, you're right to worry about these things. Maybe you're just trying to do the best you can. Maybe you're trying to make God happy with you by obeying whatever you understand God's law to be. You're trying to be just kind enough, just diligent enough, just generous enough, just honest enough. If you can attend church just enough, watch just enough sermons online, then you kind of cross your fingers and hope that it'll all work out and God will accept you. Well, Paul reminds us this morning that it won't work. Whatever your best is, it is not good enough for God's perfect and holy requirements. But the really, really good news is that you can be set free from that burden if you trust that Jesus has already done it for you. Turn away from your sin and place your faith in Jesus. Trust him and follow him, and you too can be free. You were called to freedom, brothers. So these are the things we have in mind when we define freedom the way that Paul does. Freedom from the law, freedom from having to earn the right to stand before God. So that's our first point, freedom defined. Next, we see the idea of freedom abused, freedom abused. So Paul anticipates that his readers might misunderstand what he means when he talks about freedom. He anticipates that his readers that we even might misunderstand and therefore abuse this idea of freedom. So Paul addresses it right here in our text. Here are a few things that the Christian's freedom does not mean. Uh, For one, the Christian's freedom does not mean freedom to indulge our sinful desires. Look at the last half of verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. 
So this is a common temptation for Christians all the way back in Paul's day up to the present day, common temptation to think, well, I'm free from the requirements of the law. Praise God for that. And God will totally accept me apart from what I do. So, you know, I'll, I'll do the best that I can, but I'm not going to stress about it too much. I'll spend my money however is easiest. A little bit of gossip isn't going to hurt anything. A little bit of porn isn't going to kill me. I'll be nice to my neighbor, but I don't need to go out of my way to do stuff for them. It's, it's all good because I've been freed from the law. Well, Paul states it plainly in verse 13. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Another thing Paul teaches uh, is that the Christian's freedom does not mean freedom to disregard the law. It's interesting. You might expect with the, the argument that Paul's making here in Galatians, you might expect him to say, you know what? Christ freed us from the law. So you can actually just forget about that part of the Bible. You can politely just remove that part of the Old Testament and file it away somewhere because you really don't need it anymore because Christ has freed you from the law. But that is not Paul's mindset. Look at verse 14. He says, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So Paul isn't overlooking or deleting the law. He's not voiding out the requirements of the law. He wants the law to be fulfilled. Of course, it's been perfectly fulfilled in Jesus. And as we obey this one overarching command to love your neighbor as yourself, the law is fulfilled even in our own lives. Charles Spurgeon, uh, the 19th century pastor, helps us understand the proper place of the law for the one who is saved by faith in Jesus. Spurgeon writes, What is God's law now? It is not above a Christian. It is under a Christian. Some men hold God's law like a rod in terror over Christians and say, If you sin, you will be punished with it. But it is not so. The law is under a Christian. It is for him to walk on, to be his guide, his rule, his pattern. We are not under the law, but under grace. Law is the road which guides us, not the rod which drives us. The law is good and excellent if it keeps its place. So the Christian's freedom does not mean indulging the flesh, and it doesn't mean disregarding the law. Either of these would be an abuse of our freedom in Christ. There's one more abuse of freedom that Paul highlights. The Christian's freedom does not mean freedom to ignore or exploit or overlook the needs of other people. On the contrary, our freedom obligates us to love our neighbor. And so we'll consider this idea more fully under our third point of our sermon, freedom applied. Freedom applied. Well, let me remind you here of what we said the main point of the sermon is today, that Christ has set us free, unchaining us from the law, and binding us to each other in loving service. Look at our text again, Galatians 5, 13 through 15. You were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. According to these verses, the right application of our freedom is serving each other. 
That's a really striking, uh, to some degree, a surprising twist in Paul's argument. Maybe it's just me, but I would kind of expect Paul to say, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but instead worship God or preach the gospel or do something that's sort of spiritual sounding like that. That's kind of what you would expect. Paul's been building an argument to correct bad theology. He's trying to rescue the, the Galatians from a, a dangerous flirtation with unbelief. He's practically yelling at the Galatians to get the gospel right. And then all of a sudden, it feels like he takes kind of the sharp turn onto the side road where he says, well, now let's talk about serving each other. But as we meditate on these words, we see that it all makes perfect sense. Paul is not taking a sharp turn from one road to another. Instead, he's simply changing lanes from one lane to the other on this highway that he's been on this whole time. Paul is saying exactly what he intends to say, that when you get the gospel right, you will find yourself seeking to serve others. There are two lanes that run parallel to each other on the highway. When you get the gospel right, you will seek to serve others. Now, why is that? Well, the point of the gospel is to shape us more and more into the image of Jesus. And who is Jesus other than the Son of God who most exemplified what it means to serve his brothers and sisters? Christ emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Looking at verse 13 here, it's interesting to note that the word translated in the ESV as serve is actually the word for slave. Listen to how the New Revised Standard Version translates this verse. It says, For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence, but through love become slaves to one another. One commentator notes, Here is the paradox. By setting us free to serve, the Holy Spirit enslaves us to one another in love. So now we can start to see a little bit more of what Paul is doing here. Continuing this, uh, this imagery of slavery, he celebrates that we have been set free from bondage to the requirements of the law. We truly are free. Then Paul defines what our freedom looks like. It's not an individualistic, self-serving, no boundaries, whatever I want, American idea of freedom. No, it's a freedom in submission to, in service to one another. Martin Luther, the Protestant reformer, says, a Christian is a perfectly free Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a perfectly dutiful servant of all, subject to all. Another commentator says, our freedom is not self-seeking, but self-sacrificing. Kevin reminded us in the sermon last week that sin keeps us from prioritizing others by focusing us on ourselves. But when Christ sets us free, we are suddenly able to look outward at others. Instead of looking inward at ourselves, we're able to look outward at others and focus on meeting their needs because we know that God in Christ has graciously given us all things and has freed us to go and to serve one another. And this is true freedom the freedom to serve each other. And we have to note that Paul uses some pretty graphic language here to warn us of what will happen when we fail to serve one another. Verse 15, but if you bite and devour one another, watch out 
that you are not consumed by one another. You notice the progression there. It starts with biting and then progressively uh, gets worse. My family, we have a, a little dog named Maggie, and she's a cute, little, feisty, little creature. Um, she thinks of herself as a vicious animal, uh, but really she's just a little fluffball. She likes to play rough, or her idea of rough. You play with her and she'll nibble on your fingers or chew on your toes. It doesn't hurt. It's kind of cute. Just a little nipping and biting. Well, maybe that's how it starts, but this is not what Paul is picturing here. He's picturing more of the lion that you see on the Discovery Channel who's chasing down his prey. And maybe it starts with a bite, but it quickly gives way to ripping off chunks of flesh and enjoying this feast of red meat. Before you know it, there's nothing left. The poor victim has been totally consumed by the lion. When you're a Christian in the church, there are a couple of ways you can think about other people. You can think of others as nuisances to be managed and dealt with and shaped into whatever is most convenient for you, or you can think of others as those whom you can submit to and serve. One will give way to biting and devouring and consuming each other. The other will give way to loving service that pictures just a little bit of what Jesus is like. Paul warns us not to use our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. And then just a few verses down, he elaborates on what it looks like when we do give opportunity to the flesh. And he contrasts that with what it looks like when we walk in the Spirit, as he explains it. So look down at verse 19. Paul says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. That sounds like a pretty rotten list. It's pretty easy to read that and think, well, thank goodness. That doesn't describe me at all. But do you notice how many of those works of the flesh are really things that pop up all the time in our interaction with each other? Impurity, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Most of the works of the flesh that Paul lists here are fairly mundane aspects of how we often sin in relationship to one another. Contrast this with the fruit of the Spirit in verse 22, and, and note again how many of these things speak directly to our relationships with other people. In verse 22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So our, our sin, the works of the flesh are expressed in how we relate to each other and the power of God's Spirit in our lives that frees us from the law. This is regularly and rightly expressed and applied in how we serve one another. When sin is controlling us, we're annoyed by the thought of serving someone else. Conversely, when we're actively serving another person, it's much more difficult to have a sinful disposition towards that person. Perhaps this is why Jesus taught us in Luke chapter 6 not only to love our enemies, but to do good to those who hate you. Luke 6.35, Jesus says, But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. 
Christ has set us free so that we can live like that. So what does it look like to serve one another? Well, one thing we can say is that serving another person often, maybe always, is costly. You have to give up something in order to serve someone else. Give up your time, your money, your priorities, maybe even your image or your reputation. Donald Whitney is an author and seminary professor. He says that service costing nothing accomplishes nothing. You serve when you get up, uh, give up part of your Saturday to cut the grass for an older neighbor who lives alone, or you give up part of your paycheck to help a family in the church who has lost their job, or you go out of your way to sacrificially care for the person in need who happens to sharply disagree with you on political matters. Let me read for you a, a quote from Martin Luther again. Luther says, serving one another means this. It means performing unimportant works, such as teaching the erring, comforting the afflicted, encouraging the weak, helping the neighbor in whatever way one can, bearing with his rude manners and impoliteness, putting up with annoyances, labors, and ingratitude and contempt from, both, from men both in church and state, obeying the magistrates, treating one's parents with respect, being patient in the home with a cranky and unmanageable family, and the like. In other words, he says, serving one another most often happens in the ordinary, mundane moments of life. And then he drives it home even more. So we're sitting here thinking about, well, okay, what does it look like? How do we serve other people? Listen to what Luther says. If you want to know how your neighbor ought to be loved, think how you would love yourself. If you are in need or in danger, you are glad to have the love and friendship of others, to be helped by everyone's advice, possessions, and strength. You do not need any book to tell you how to love your neighbor. You have an excellent book of all laws in your own heart. You need no teacher in this matter. Just ask your own heart, and that will teach you well enough that you ought to love your neighbor as yourself. So here's the truth of it, is that when we fail to serve one another, it's not because we can't come up with ideas on how to do that. It's because our general disposition is one of focusing on ourselves and not focusing on others. We want to keep attention and focus in our time and our resources and these things that the Lord has given to us that rightly belong to us, we want to keep them for ourselves. We deserve to hold on to these things, and our neighbor, even our enemy, doesn't deserve them. So we fail to serve one another, not because we can't come up with, with ways to do so, but because our disposition is to think only of ourselves. Praise God that's not what Jesus did. Praise God that he freed us from this bondage so that we might not only be free to serve, but actually bound to one another in loving service. Donald Whitney again says that worship empowers serving, and serving expresses worship. Those who can maintain service without regular personal and corporate worship are serving in the flesh. And then he says, one measure of the authenticity of worship is whether it results in a desire to serve. So as we close today, I just want to challenge each one of you to think about these things. Does your worship of the Lord 
whether it's your corporate worship here today or whether it's your private worship in your daily time with the Lord at home, does your worship push you outward to serve other people? What tends to characterize you? Do you tend to think mostly of yourself to the point that it annoys you when someone else needs your help? Or do you scour the church, the neighborhood, your, your own family, looking for ways that you can serve others? By God's grace, we see much evidence that we are a church where we serve one another. We should thank the Lord for that. We should not be complacent. There is plenty of room for us to grow in these things. We should push into this all the more, seeking to serve one another in the days to come. Towards the end of this letter, Galatians, Paul wraps up with some encouragement regarding this call to serve one another. Uh, Look down at chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, and Paul, as he's wrapping up his letter, he says, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, it is unnatural for us in our flesh. It is unnatural for us to be people who serve one another. Because of the sin in our hearts, that's not who we are. Thank you that your grace came to us. Lord, we ask today that you would work powerfully in our own hearts to make us into people who are more and more and more like Jesus in these things. We ask that the evidence of this would be visible for all to see in how we actively and sacrificially serve one another. Lord, we ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus.